0: you got to crawl before you can walk. Of course, we know it. It's a cliche for a reason, and yet not enough of us heed that warning. On today's episode, I'm chatting with Lauren Fernandez, talking all about her company, uh, Full Course, which helps companies figure out how they can crawl so that they can figure out how to walk and then eventually make sure that they're ready for an all-out sprint. We're going to talk all about the common threads of uh, what makes a successful restaurant and what all struggling restaurants seem to have in common. She's a super, super intelligent person, very, very passionate, thrilled to have on the show don't go anywhere there's an old saying that goes something like this you'll only find three kinds of people in the world those who see those who will never see and those who can see when shown this is restaurant strategy a podcast with answers for anyone who's looking My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly podcast dedicated entirely to the hospitality industry. We cover marketing operations and everything in between. Each week I leverage my 20 plus years in the industry to help you build a more profitable and a more sustainable business. I also work directly with operators all over the world through my group coaching programs to address and overcome the specific challenges we face in our industry. Curious to learn more? Set up a free 30-minute strategy session by visiting restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. Let me show you how simple it can be to run a profitable restaurant. Again, restaurantstrategypodcast.com slash schedule. As always, you'll find that link in the show notes. Now, Thousands of restaurants across the country use Kickfin to send instant cashless tip payouts directly to their employees' bank accounts the second their shift ends. It's a really simple solution to a really big problem because, let's face it, paying out cash tips to your workers day after day, shift after shift, can be kind of a nightmare. Tedious tip distribution takes managers away from work that matters. It's hard to track payments, which leads to accounting and compliance headaches. Plus, cash tip-outs create the perfect opportunity for theft. And there's never enough cash on hand to pay out tips, so managers are constantly making bank runs. Bottom line, there's never been a secure, efficient way to tip out until now. Meet Kickfin. Kickfin is an easy-to-use software that sends real-time cashless tip payouts straight to your employees' bank accounts 24-7, 365. Tipping out with Kickfin gives managers and operators hours back in their day. It makes reporting a breeze and protects your business from mistakes and theft. And employees love it, so it's one of the best recruiting tools out there. Best of all, restaurants can have Kickfin up and running overnight. Employees can enroll in seconds, no hardware, no contracts, no setup fees. Get in touch today for a personalized demo and see how restaurants and bars across the country are tipping out with Kickfin. Visit kickfin.com demo. As always, that link is in the show notes. My guest on today's show is the founder of Full Course. It's a woman by the name of Lauren Fernandez, a very smart lady. Uh, Thrilled to have you on the show. Lauren, welcome.
1: Thank you so much for having me today. I appreciate it.
0: My pleasure. We were introduced uh, surreptitiously, and uh, I think with no idea uh, what was going to come out of it. And I still don't know uh, the full uh, what the full relationship is going to be. But by the end of that conversation, it was very obvious that you had uh, a lot of insights to share. And so um, uh, I asked you to join me on the podcast, and you uh, very uh, politely said yes. So I'm thrilled to have you here. Um, I want to start things off. Uh, tell the audience, give them a little context about who you are, um, what full. Course Is what you guys do, Uh, and like I said, we'll use that as a jumping off point to talk about so much more.
1: Yeah, so I've had an interesting career in the industry. Uh, The TLDR on this is you know, former restaurant and franchise uh, product development attorney turned multi-unit franchisee, now turned restaurant investor and developer. So I started Full Course about two years ago and we launched to meet a specific need that I saw in the marketplace to support emerging restaurateurs and their brands and help them grow in a way that presents them with fair and ethical capital, provides them with the education, mentoring, and coaching that they need to grow as leaders and supports their business operations with best-in-class consulting services and really leans into our development team to help them deploy the capital that they have earned to help them grow their business. So Full Course is a complete solution for everyone out there who's looking to grow their business and also to grow themselves personally and professionally. We have a wide array of services that we offer um, at a very decent um, rate or sometimes even free through our foundation, the Full Course Foundation. So, you know, we got a lot of things going on out there, right? We have an investment track. We have a ton of coaching and educational opportunities. All of it is designed to lift and elevate our restaurant industry and build it back better.
0: Yeah, I love it. So um, there's obviously a fair amount of overlap uh, between what you do and what I do. Mm-hmm. The beauty of what you do, and I, and I always say this to, to many, many guests, so listeners will certainly recognize this, um, I think the particular value that you offer the listeners here is that you get to peek behind the curtains um, at a bunch of different restaurants. So mm-hmm. um, I want to pull on some of that perspective, and I want to um, see if you can share some of it. I want to start off by talking about the difference between independence and chains or independence and franchises. Yeah. Um, I think that the, the differences to me uh, or to some people might seem obvious but I think it's not so obvious. What does one thing have that the other one should have and what does other, the other one need that the other one... Um, do, do you know what I mean? Like yeah. w- where are the differences having been now on, on sort of uh, both. both sides of yeah. that table? yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I also have the unique perspective of having been on the franchisor side with focus brands, um, running franchise compliance, franchise administration, and working very closely with the franchisees during that time, and then very quickly flipping over to the other side of the equation and being a multi-unit franchisee in an emerging brand. And so what I'll share is, you know, independent restaurants, um, you know, I think there's a deeper connection to the purpose and mission because ostensibly the owner is still very connected to the business. So it's the owner's purpose and mission that is naturally informing the brand's purpose and mission. And so obviously, as you scale an independent restaurant group, you still want to maintain that purpose mission and that true north. But when they're very small, like less than five units, It really is all in the head and the heart of the owner. And so for us, that's something that actually differentiates independent restaurants because it's not codified yet, right? It hasn't become institutionalized into the brand. It's not necessarily in all the marketing. It's just in the way that they do things, right? So when we work with independent brands that we have in our investment track, we spend a significant amount of time working with the owner, understanding their why, their purpose, and their mission so that we can use that to invest inform the brand and create it in a systemized fashion that is included in everything we do from the way we onboard new employees to the way we recruit franchisees to the way we do our training to the way we greet our guests everything right ostensibly so then on the franchise. let me just go ahead
0: No, go ahead. Go ahead. And then I've got a question. I I didn't mean to interrupt you.
1: I think really phenomenal franchise organizations have mastered this, whether they meant to or not. And I was with Chicken Salad Chick in the early days of the brand. It was a thing to open your restaurant. It was you just all the other franchisees showed up. If they were in your market, um, you know, the the executive team would roll in. There was, you know, a huge family there to celebrate that win. And that is such a chick moment. Like, if you're familiar with that brand, the whole thing feels like a giant hug. Like, if you're a customer, you feel like you're eating in someone's dining room. If you work there, it's a wonderful environment to work in and i feel like that's a great example of franchise organizations that did a good job of embodying what the founder was all about and putting it into the nuances of the system and therefore imbuing in in their franchisees this notion that you're a chick too. like, get out there and love on your community, be the mayor. And, you know, in recent conversations with Stacey Brown, the founder, I find that, you know, I celebrate that I appreciate that that brand, even as a franchisee gave me an opportunity to be the mayor of my dining room and of my community and really own our role as the the um, the leaders of the brand in this community where we were building there was a reliance on that and almost an insistence which i think was really special so on the flip side i'll say a lot of brands miss that and so i will say i think that's a good learning kind of to take from those early stage independent brands you have to carry that purpose and mission forward absolutely
0: so then let me back up here's where i was going to interrupt and ask this question because What do you do when the independent can't articulate their mission their why so yeah maybe this is just you as you've come across right it's a they do great food they offer great service right. but they're not clear on their why I you know I always bring up Sean Walsh chef uh, Sean's been on this show twice he and I mm-hmm. have I've been on his podcast once uh, we've spoken together a bunch and uh, we gave a talk uh, in Los Angeles uh, last year where we talked all about um, not only finding your why but the two whys number one like why do you do what you do and why should anyone care about mm-hmm. that? And I find that a lot of independents are sort of sheepish about that. Like they feel like, well, it's just like it's just dot dot dot. It's just fill in the blank. So how do you? What do you do when you come across that somebody who's who does it? Who's got a fuzzy why? How, how do you? Yeah. How do you help them find that?
1: Yeah. So I, I think it's an interesting recipe of you know one part empathy. One part, um, a deep understanding of what it is to be an operator and having walked in those shoes, it is not easy. And I think one part psychology, to be honest with you. Um, Everyone has a reason they get up in the morning and do this every single day. It is hard, it is punishing. It is relentless. It is 365, right? It drags your family in. I mean, I I tell people all the time, if you think you're buying a restaurant and some mailbox money situation, you're mistaken. It's going to suck in everyone in your family. It it becomes very much a family owned business very quickly. I mean, my husband had a name tag not a part of our business at all. But when I needed help, he's who I called, right? He knows how to put sure. away a truck. He knows how to FIFO, he knows exactly what to
0: yeah. <laughs> So,
1: you know, I say that with a ton of respect, but you know, also you really have to understand what makes someone tick. And for us as investors, that is incredibly important because we do not take a majority position. We rely on our founders and operators to continue to run the business and to build and grow their team, even as we're growing the business with them. And so that alignment and understanding of who they are as a person and why they get up is so critical, it's actually a gatekeeper for us. Um, I don't know that we, have ever really found a good alignment with someone who's just in it for the money. You know, we are a very people and purpose driven company. If you just want to check, we'll gladly refer you somewhere else. That is not what Fulcrum is about. And so weirdly your question is perfectly how we tee up, initial discussions with our clients if they are a prospect for our investment track or even for our consulting track we dig in on, on this in this exact issue all the time in our brand workshops which is way too much to go into right now but i'll tell you one of the most powerful exercises is tell me why you decided to do this And then you let them tell the story. And then when you're done, you just let the air sit. And then you ask this question, why are you still doing it? Because there is something that propels them forward to use restaurants, to use food, usually in service to others, in connection to people, connection and explanation of their culture. Maybe there's always something there. And that is where we start. Once we can kind of circle what that is, we take that idea and we blow that out. We go, tell me more about that. You love talking to people about your culture. Let's talk about that. Let's go to the why on that. Why do you go in on that? Why is that really important to you? Why couldn't you just do that as a blogger? Why couldn't you just have a clothing line, right? You chose food, let's figure out why. Um, And so it is layers, (laughs) layers sometimes. Yeah, it's fuzzy. Um, And then sometimes you might get an answer that surprises you. But I think it's important information to know because if you don't know what makes your partner tick, you're never going to get alignment, you're not going to really understand how to make them happy. And so fundamentally, I think even before it's a brand exercise for us, it's a partnership exercise, to be honest with you.
0: It makes a lot of sense. This Mm -hmm. is a question that I ask a lot of people because, and I said this a minute ago, I find a lot of operators, uh, and sometimes I work with people who just, quote unquote, just have a pizza place, just run a sub shop, Mm -hmm. just have an Indian restaurant, just, and they they always sort of like apologize for it. And and I think uh, connecting with that is really crucial. And oftentimes I find that their struggles are sort of tethered to that, 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 If they can get clear on that and they can figure out, again, Mm -hmm. why they decided to do it, why they're still doing it. And then, again, that last why that I always ask, which is that, um, why should anybody care? Because you have to convince people. That's what we're doing in Mm -hmm. sales. We convince people to do this instead of that. Come dine at my restaurant instead of that other restaurant. Mm -hmm. Well, why should I dine at your restaurant? I like the other restaurant just fine. Mm -hmm. The next words out of your mouth are good going to be the words that either win you the sale or lose you the sale. They convince mm-hmm. people to come or not. That's the same thing if you're running a restaurant or if you just want to get mom's keys, you know, to take the car on a Friday night. Like, or it's sign like, an
1: investor to your fund. I totally get it. I totally yeah. get it. And I'll tell you what we always go back to. Um, you can have the best food in the world. You can have the most phenomenal value proposition. But I think in this day and age, if you are not clear in what you stand for and what your purpose and mission are as a company, you're not going to land with consumers. There's enough competition out there. The attitudes of consumers are changing. Um, and especially as it relates to fast casual, you know, that's a higher average ticket. They want not just an experience that's seamless, but they want to feel like they understand and are aligned with your purpose. And that's not fluff anymore. It can no longer just be like a motto on the wall.
0: Oh, for me, I believe that is the value proposition, Mm -hmm. like like the why the purpose for Mm -hmm. me is the value proposition, not that. You know, and and we we talk about this, right? In marketing school, you talk about you know what's the position, you know what's the position, what, you know what problem do you solve? How does your solution um, solve the problem in, in a more compelling way? And for me, the purpose and all of that is so closely. Tethered to that, like you said, it's a, every market is saturated. It doesn't matter if you're in a big city or a small town. There are more restaurants, probably twice as many restaurants now than there were 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally twice. I mean, it's mm-hmm. insane. What mm-hmm. you say before we uh, before we hit play? You were saying there wasn't like a million restaurants mm-hmm. in the in, in the country and growing. Mm-hmm. There's a low barrier of entry, especially when we get into virtual brands and ghost kitchens. Mm-hmm. You know how we define restaurant is changing for sure.
1: Yeah, and I think I think I'll just add to that very quickly. When you are clear in what you're about and why you do it, and it has that level of honesty and its connection to consumers, I think that that's step one in creating some pretty serious brand loyalty, and to me, that's what really sets apart an exceptional brand from a great one is that purpose and mission defines itself clearly but then it connects to consumers and those consumers become fiercely loyal and they don't just return weekly they come back with friends they're on social media sharing your posts. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing, um, and we experienced some pretty amazing double-digit comp growth year over year, which is very hard to do. When we owned our Chick restaurants, on that exact premise, we loved our loyal customers and we treated them very, very well. You know, and I think that that is often overlooked. And in a crowded market where you have a lot of competition, brand loyalty is where it's at
0: so i wanted you said a couple of things there that i want to tackle separately when you talk about brand loyalty i totally agree one of the things that i talk about quite a bit is following you know the best companies in the world and i said just get on their email list follow them on social media see what they are doing Mm -hmm. and not necessarily food because in food we don't do it particularly well but when you look at nike when you look at yeti when you look at Samsung or Nikon or Apple, the I mean, where there is true brand loyalty, right? You you are a Nikon user or a Canon user, and you stay there forever. Team right? Nikon, by the way. People say that again.
1: <laughs> Team Nikon, right here.
0: <laughs> Team Nikon for me as well, but it's you know it's the same thing, right? Yeah. BMW. There there are people are are steadfast in their loyalty to some of these brands, and when you look at that, and you understand. Um, it's worth taking a look at seeing, you know, what's what's their secret sauce? What's their recipe? The beauty of these companies that have been around 40, 50, 100 plus years is that, like, their secret sauce ain't so secret secret anymore. You can go figure it out and figure out what they're doing to apply it to what we're doing. I mean, Simon Sinek very famously wrote his book, mm-hmm. Start With Why, mm-hmm. um, and wrote much of it uh, talking about Apple and sort of what the founders did and what they brought to it. Mm-hmm. And that they weren't building computers. They were building tools to help empower the individual, mm-hmm. famously. That's how their, their early memos were. We're empowering the individual. Well, how do we do that? Through software and hardware. That's what we do. Then that all sort of dictates the kind of software and the kind of hardware we develop and the way that we present it, et cetera, et cetera. You know, their why was so clearly defined from the beginning. When you compare that to a company like IBM, it's just, it's not even close. You can't even have that conversation. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about brand, okay, when you talk about just to go back to this idea of purpose and mission and understanding the why and the founders why, so the best independents out there have a clear why right It's no fuzzy why, and the best restaurants that grow or the 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 ones that grow successfully are the ones that can really uh, articulate that a- am i am I saying that right you know articulating it and really can magnify that yeah, and then bring a sense of ownership into either the store level if it's a big corporate mm-hmm. brand or at the franchisee level you you talked about we felt like we were the owner of that brand mm-hmm. in that market mm-hmm. talk to me about that how you grow how you articulate and how you magnify uh, a brand's why
1: yeah so i think that you have to be willing to not just be clear and take a stand but you have to be willing to share that mantle right and so I think I was around unit four or five in my development journey uh, when I owned restaurants, when I realized, oh, my God, I cannot be everywhere solving every problem all the time. And for me, that was a a big part of that was the customer service response. And so just as an exemplar, you know, we fully empowered our managers to make it right. We said, if you cannot make it right, we're going to give you a special card. That's like we called it the owner escalation card. This is a true story. Okay. And we had a special email address and it was like, you know, owner at whatever. And um, it came to me at my desk and it was designed to escalate matters that could not be resolved in the store itself in that moment. And it's a really funny thing. But can I just say that like in the two years that we had that our our restaurant staff would go through those cards all the time. We only got about 25 emails. But it was Interesting. the fact that we were willing to let customers go and talk to the owner that I think was really powerful. You know, the other thing we did was we gave our managers, um, you know, a budget for correction and for fixing things. And, and if it was beyond something that they could handle, they would email me and I would send the person a gift card and a handwritten note From me on my stationery, we gave our owners two set our our managers two sets of business cards. So they had a traditional regular business card, and they also had what we called a free scoop card. So they would be able to immediately fix something with a free scoop of chicken salad on the person's next visit, for example, or to use it as a as an incentive for someone to come into the restaurant, you know, they're at the dry cleaner, they're having a chat in their local community and they're like, yeah, I run the chicken salad chick around the corner. And the person's like, oh my God, I love chick. And they're like, here, come and try us sometime. We'd love yeah. to have you. So, so I,
0: now tell me though, because was this something that was happening up at like, uh, with all the franchise do, doing, or was this something that you personally um, enacted?
1: Um, the owner card was ours. Um, and and I think even on the back, it had a number of common questions we would get where we didn't want the owner, the, um, I'm sorry, the manager asking or answering the question. So like we would get solicitations all the time for sports and local charities and things like that. And we had a program where we vetted them and reviewed them as a team and budget allocated our budget. But they had to go through our process. And so if anyone ever came in trying to sell them something or asking for a donation or a sponsorship, they also got that owner card. And on the back of the card, it said, if you have any of these issues or you're looking for a job, like here, here's the millions of reasons you can use this card and let us know. Like, let us, yeah. let us know what you yeah. need. How can we help you? How can we be of service? And that included escalating you know, any kind of customer service issues. That was 100% our creation. Um, One was to empower the managers to allow it to us. It's okay to escalate to an owner. You shouldn't feel scared you're going to lose your job or, you know, be worried that someone's going to narc on you. No, I want them to feel like, i trust you to handle it but if it's beyond your scope and you got a line out the door say you know what our owner's really great she'd love to hear from you here's her card do you mind reaching out to her directly she'd love to hear about your sponsorship i just can't do it right now we're very interested yep here's her number you know that kind of thing so that is something that we created internally the um the free scoop card i mean we we had that at most southwest grill i remember um The then CEO, Paul D'Amico, had a free burrito on the back of his car. And I just love that idea. Candidly, I can't remember if we just kind of ripped that off and took it over. to. No,
0: this is that's what I want to know, though, because I wanted to know is if it came at uh, came down from the corporate level which it could have, and say, hey, this is what we do. We do a a two-card, we got a two-card strategy. Or whether you were empowered to to do that, which it sounds like you were, where you got the idea from, I don't care. I steal (laughs) all this crap. I mean, what you talked about, about empowering the managers, I remember first hearing Tim Ferriss write about that in the four-hour work Mm -hmm. week. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, if there's a problem that customer service can handle for less than, uh, Fifty dollars, hundred dollars, right. five hundred dollars. Right. If they can solve that for under that amount, then it's not worth bothering me. Right. Number one, it's not worth the founder's time, the owner's time. But number two, I want to empower them to actually take agency over the situation, mm-hmm. which helps bring a, a level of ownership that just about nothing else can can do. When you when you when you put managers or, or even your hourly employees in charge of your uh, of your uh, property, in, in charge of your brand. And you say, we want you to do this. Just really saying like, no, we give you full ownership. Mm-hmm. We give you agency to make it right and to, to right the wrongs and all of that. And and man, you get buy-in from your team, which is why I love what you're talking about now.
1: Yeah, we even did it with our employees. And so another thing, as we grew the company and we crossed the 400 employee mark, um, You know, we would coach everyone like, okay, here's your escalation path. And we would do it on the well, onboarding. But what we started realizing was, a lot of the employees like didn't really quite grasp that it was a franchised unit, even though they'd met me, they knew, they'd been it, you know, like sometimes it, it just gets lost in translation. So they'd call the corporate office. And so we didn't want any of that, right? We're franchisee, right. that's our business, like that is, you know, I'm an attorney, I understand the delicacy of like, you know, it's a delicate thing, like the franchisee employee relationship versus the franchisor. And so what we ended up doing was putting a very kind of clear flowchart styled like, here's your escalation path. If you can't solve it with your manager, and you feel like you can't, then this is the area director, if you if you feel like right. you can't solve it with those two, here's your HR confidential 1 800 number. And if none of those work, then you email this number, and it's the owner. And like, you cannot send an email to that amount like you unless you do the other things first, like it was pretty clear and it wrapped that up pretty quickly but it also gave employees the agency to speak up and to tell us when things weren't going right it gave them an outlet to tell us as owners and tell our hr department if things were going wrong which is important to do to take care of your people when you can't be everywhere at once right um yeah I'm not stupid. I know everyone's on their best behavior, and the store is immaculate when the owner's in town, right? When we're around, <laughs> but you want right. to know what's going on when you're not there, and you have to sure. trust and empower the people who are running it in your absence. And this is true whether you are a franchisor or you're a franchisee, and you're trusting your manager. I think the same is true. Um, you know, you have to have ways to make sure that you are empowering them to hold the standard, but also ways to check and ver- verify and. Validate that they are too.
0: Pop Menu has reimagined the restaurant. They're breaking the mold of the menu, taking the kitchen doors off the hinges, and serving up their most comprehensive technology solution yet. It's called Pop Menu Max. It comes with the previous ingredients you've heard me mention on the podcast websites designed with SEO, marketing tools to keep you top of mind with guests, and of course, the patented interactive menu technology. This new recipe brings automated phone answering, third-party online order aggregation, wait listing, and more to the table. PopMenU's phone answering technology has your ringing phones covered. With artificial intelligence, AI, the simple questions that keep your phone line tied up can now be handled without pulling a staff member from your in-person hospitality. No more missed reservations, asking for your hours, or missed revenue, and that's just the beginning. You have a passion for food, Pop Menu has a passion for technology. Together, it's a recipe for restaurant success. Now, even more digital ingredients are in their technology pantry, and Pop Menu is helping restaurants attract, engage, remarket, and transact with their guests on a whole new level. Trust me, if you're a restaurant owner, you need Pop Menu to take your business to the next level. For a limited time only, get $100 off your first month, plus you lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go to popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy to claim this offer. Again, that's $100 off your first month by visiting popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy. That link is also in the show notes. So then let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about accountability. Mm. How do you How do you do that? Um, or how did you do that when you were in that position? And how do you then coach um, coach and guide your people to, to do that?
1: Yeah, this is like one of the most powerful things that I learned as an operator. I'm just going to drop some knowledge right now. I tried a lot of stuff that just didn't work. A lot of stuff. And finally, what we got to were two really critical things. One is transparency across all the units. It was not serving us for people n- to not know what the other units were doing. And so it also serves as a nice barometer of what's really going on. So like if chicken prices are crazy high in one month and you can check it against all the other units and see that indeed that price carried across all of the units, you know, you're good. But if your chicken prices are like or, or your you know percent of COGS is crazy off the charts and everyone else is normal as a manager, you go, ding, something's not right here. We either had waste Mm -hmm. or theft. Let me get to the bottom of it because I'm going to have to answer this to Lauren. So I might as well figure it out now. So that was number one, like just creating a clear and concise reporting package that came to the managers on a monthly basis it was a it was a management PL. So we stripped everything out of the PL they had no control over. I don't need them to worry about the rent. I know what the rent is. I signed that lease. Yep. Right. So I don't it's not one of their controllables. I don't want them to care. And that okay. was kind of the big piece. And then we aggregated all of it into a dashboard that was even further condensed specifically attached to their goals and targets and this is piece number two we gave them agency over and responsibility over those numbers so it was usually something like top line sales um you know catering as a piece of that um cogs labor um you know some basic qualitative scores like your health score your Steritech, et etc and yep. every single one of those had a defined metric by unit And every single one of those line items could contribute to them earning profit. So we had a profit sharing pool that was triggered by them hitting those various targets. They could hit one of them, three of them or five of them. But if they hit all five, and they did that two months in a row, we doubled their profit sharing. So we created some seriously lucrative incentives, not just for the managers, but for the employees too. So there was a portion of that pool that went directly to management and then a portion that went to the staff. So we created this level of like, of um, really like, I think complete transparency across all of the organization. But we also went down into the organization and showed the employees like, yes, it matters that you pay attention and properly label your food with the right date. Because if we're throwing it out, and it shouldn't be thrown out, that goes into your food waste. And now you've just messed up the whole team for hitting their target for this month, right? So great. I think that ended up working for us. Um, finally got there. It took me about two years to figure all this
0: out. That was my question. So that was my my next question, which is that: How do you get the buy-in? How long did it take? And we talk about culture, right? Mm-hmm. Culture is about getting everybody rowing the same direction. So, you know, famously Seth Godin says, "People like us do things like this mm-hmm. at this restaurant. This is the way we behave for <laughs> yeah. the following reason." So, talk to me about that about that path.
1: Yeah, I think for us the massive hurdle was education. So if you just take a PNL and you hand it to a manager the average manager in a qsr to fast casual is not going to know what they're looking at or really understand the power of it as a managerial tool so we yep. launched this and then i very quickly realized we needed to have some education so as it were we had a group meeting planned on the calendar when we got all of the managers in the same room i just spent an hour walking through what a PL was like how to understand what the top meant and how you get to the bottom and we started coaching them on protecting profit margin or EBITDA and really incentivize them to that. Because if you can help them understand that the end goal is to protect the profit margin and what that means for them, mm-hmm. suddenly your labor and cogs start to make more sense. Suddenly it makes sense that I'm asking you to take inventory every Sunday. It makes sense we're yep. doing a price adjustment quarterly, you know, those things, those strategies for protecting the profit margin all become part of the playbook. And so I think that was an important lesson for me to learn that you can't make any assumptions about where your managerial staff is at the vast majority of restaurant managers never thought when they started working in a restaurant that they were going to become a manager, they learned on the job. They proceeded in their career and have done really great for themselves and they've stayed in our industry out of love and success. But the thing is, you don't necessarily get that kind of training, which is one of the reasons we have the full course foundation. Like I deeply believe that if you want to invest in retain and attract the right people to our industry you have to invest in them and their education beyond on the job training and that's why a lot of the courses that we have in our platform focus on these kinds of issues how to read a pnl what goes into a successful marketing campaign right because if someone yep. understands it they are more likely to buy in and do it period
0: yeah i think it's i think it's so true and i slipped into management the same way that i think you're describing here now i've been in the industry for 22 years so my first management job was i don't know 17 18 years ago Mm -hmm. um but i wasn't given that education and i always joke around i say you know everything you see a manager doing or everything you think a manager should be doing is really only about 20 or 30 percent of their job meaning uh, checking in staff uh, doing side worksheets you know bank drops cash outs you know dealing with angry guests all of that that's all got to get done but the real thing is care is being a, a caretaker of the bottom line understanding you know managing the property i, I more and more i keep using the analogy of a factory we bring in raw materials we do something to those raw materials and we then sell the finished product um we are uh, just a really sexy fun hospitable factory um we get to do much cooler stuff than a factory ever gets to do. Uh, But unless we do what the factory does well, which is, you know, take care of our prime costs and, and really understand how we tether our expenses to our revenue and and all that, unless we get that right, we uh, understanding the incremental cost of doing 10 more covers, 20 more covers, 30 more Mm -hmm. covers. And, um, all of that stuff that we talk about, you know, when you go, you know, go through a management program, you go through business school. Um, I'm just convinced, and it's funny. When I went to business school, um, I was working with a bunch of people who were on the retail side um, and the manufacturing side of food. Um, a lot of them didn't come from hospitality, and it really got me thinking because watching the way that they thought about their business, um, and likewise, then looking at the way that I think about uh, or thought about my business. Uh, but I took a lot of that sort of factory retail mindset. Um, back to hospitality when I sort of, you know went back into restaurants and it, it's it's just so key, and we don't do a very good job of doing it. And it's one of my favorite things when I watch a manager's eyes light up when that suddenly mm-hmm. makes sense, they say, oh, that's what we mean about, ma-. yeah, manage the expenses, manage for revenue. I, how do you build projections? How do you drive to a a projection, a projected revenue number? Yeah, you know it's 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 cool to watch them light up
1: I. I tell people all the time, you know, I, I, you know, I'm a lawyer by profession initially, but I also have an MBA and you know, took graduate level pricing courses and you know, all the finance and accounting courses as well. And it literally, you know, millions of dollars worth of balance sheets and PLs and budgets that I was responsible for even as an executive, and it clicked for me on a whole nother level when we bought our restaurants and we started running clean books we ran a whole new set of accounting books and i could see the actual impact of those numbers i could see the impact of the management issues i could see the impact of the improper food scheduling or ordering you know on the inventory side and really kind of went ding for me so you know humbly will admit you know there's some real value to learning this in context and on the job. And it isn't sure. necessarily like you need a degree or a book degree to understand it. Indeed, I think that some of the more powerful learnings is when you can couple that operational experience and the lingo of being an operator, right? Speaking operators, what we call it, with... <laughs> Really, man, you know, the management tools that we're familiar with from, you know, a traditional like MBA or, or corporate environment. And sure. I do come from a background of, you know, consumer packaged goods and, you know, manufacturing and retail and wholesale environments where pricing is the whole game right? They have only so much they can do to control the cost of that widget. But if they can track it appropriately, they can price it appropriately and then protect themselves against price erosion, which is something as an industry and restaurants I am dying for us to get to to like a level of dynamic pricing where we can do a better job of, you know, AI enabled inventory connected to real time labor costs with fully loaded labor costs, and pump out a base prime cost for that meal, and then bolt on the profit margin to determine the price to some extent. We're, I think, still three to five years off from something like that because I'm seeing glimmers of it in different IT solutions out there. But we don't really truly I, have an end-to-end solution for dynamic pricing, which is what CPG has been it's doing am, for years.
0: Amazing. Years. And so this is this is what I say all the time. You know, it's funny. I, I sit down and anytime I coach or work with agencies and all that, I say, hey, listen, let's not pat ourselves on the back. We're still nine years behind anything that e-commerce is doing. <laughs> We're true. 14 years behind anything that our <laughs> counterparts on hotels are doing. We're 15, 20 years behind what airlines are doing. We're like, let's not let's not pat ourselves on the back. like." the number of operators who don't have their menu cost out today that don't have today's menu cost out right i just went to buy groceries my local supermarket uh, a, a dozen eggs was eight dollars eight dollars it was like 280 the other you know six months ago yeah three you know it's three bucks and now it's Eight. Yeah. It's a, And so I know operators listening to this are going to feel that. They understand that. And everybody's been grumbling, but that has to get passed on to the consumer. Mm-hmm. It has to, it's just that that's, <laughs> this is what inflation is. And we've been dealing with this a lot where it's like, well, I, I don't want, because if, 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 you know, if we make it too expensive, well, if you keep it where it is, you're not paying your bills. Mm-hmm. So if you make it more expensive, you'll actually be paying your bills. And yeah, maybe that means that some people think twice about coming to join you and they say, well, it's really expensive to dine. Now it is it is what it is then we go back to our marketing side which i want to get to right the mm-hmm. marketing side is how do you convince people of your value how do you convince people that what they need is what you have mm-hmm. talk to me no we're going to do that in a second because i <laughs> want to go back to dynamic pricing why don't we do dynamic pricing has anybody done it successfully
1: no No, not really, not not really, not in the way that you and I are probably familiar with seeing it. And where
0: Tuesday's meal is cheaper, Saturday's meal is more expensive, Right,
1: literally. Um, and, And not just to take advantage, I want to be clear, this is not a methodology of pricing in other industries to take advantages of demand necessarily or of timing. This is more a strategy of making sure that you are tracking the actual cost fully loaded of that widget through the entire enterprise as work in progress until it lands on a shelf. And even the cost at retail is so expensive to play in some of these big box retailers, you might make a nickel on a dollar if you're lucky but yep. if you're sophisticated enough to implement these sort of just-in-time pricing technologies, then when you yep. get to that endpoint, you'll probably take home $0.09 to $0.10 instead of 5 because you're more closely so, monitoring the real true cost of that product. And that is a true dynamic pricing model. Yes. Of course, there's many, many versions of it that have to do with demand. But this is a little bit more of a tracking issue for our industry. And candidly, I just don't know that we've done a great job Making inventory easy. Still, I still,
0: I totally agree. Um, so let me go back and just say for for those people who are listening who don't quite understand what <laughs> we're talking about, right? We're talking about dynamic pricing. It's we know this, right? It's cheaper to fly midweek than it is to fly on the weekend. That's dynamic pricing. The pricing um, changes um, in real time. Mm-hmm. That as more inventory gets chewed up on a flight there are less seats, the prices of those seats go up. We've seen this Mm -hmm. in hotels. We've seen this in um, uh, uh, hotels, airlines, uh, Broadway theaters, things like that. So the idea is on the one side, it's a supply and demand thing, right? More people want to dine on the weekends, we should be able to make that more expensive because there's more demand. There's greater demand. People want to go out on a date. They're going to go out with friends. They are willing to spend maybe a little bit more. That's the one side, which is not what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But that is one way to address this. One way. The other side, the other piece to this is understanding how the real-time costs Mm -hmm. affect the profitability of a given meal. Mm -hmm. For example, if you bring in the same 10 people on a Saturday night, Your labor cost is gonna be lower because you're gonna be generating more revenue. So your labor percentage on that night is less. Meanwhile on a Tuesday it takes the same 10 people to open up the restaurant and you've got less revenue coming in mm-hmm. so you've got a uh, a much higher labor cost and that we should be able to address them accordingly that's a, it gets to a little bit of what you're talking about am i wrong
1: yeah and i and i think there's a piece to this too so some of this is demand driven of course it's just supply and demand type economic pull on the elasticity of the price right however i think there's also a piece of this as a as an industry we're missing this whole notion of just-in-time inventory and the just-in-time pricing that pushes the cost of that inventory moving through work-in-progress all the way through to the plate that really, yep. really captures the base cost of that. So picture a base cost of a plate. Let's say it's $5. Yep. Once you know it's $5, you can make a choice that your profit margin is, let's say, 20%. Now, once you bolt that 20% on to that $5, and you know what you're charging, you can also adjust that price for whether it's a Monday or a Sunday, right? So there's, there's some layered complexity to pricing in the restaurant industry that has not been fully embraced. There are some concepts out there and emerging technologies that are pushing into this, and the, the playground for them is third-party apps, um where they can adjust pricing based on who else is on the platform what time of day it is demand surge pricing kind mm-hmm. of a search. basically that's what it is right surge style pricing which we're all familiar with yeah. uber thank you for that uber um you know that's a very different animal than i think a proper tracking and an ai enabled inventory um a better labor model where we can track i think there's some pieces around that I'll give them that. Um, But sticking it all together, so you get the whole chain, I think is really an important piece of this. And from a marketing perspective, you got to understand your customer, you know, I play in the fast casual segment, there's a value play there, but it's not necessarily a price play there, right? You and you're in QSR, completely different animal, right? Like it's very hard to budge off, you know, a 599 a 699 center of plate option or have something Mm -hmm. over $10. So there's a different play on pricing in different segments of the restaurant industry as well, right? Your fine dining client being able to pay that price is part of the experience. Like that is that is a different customer than a QSR customer, mm-hmm. far more sensitive in the QSR space than perhaps even the fine dining space. And then there's a whole spectrum in between. So we can't even approach this as an industry as a one size fits all, but the methodology by which we bring it in the back door produce something amazing with it and sell to someone on a plate is still like a little clunky no matter i think which segment you're in and would love yeah. for someone to throw some money at that <laughs> we have a lot a <laughs> lot of other apps out there and technology but not really one that goes soup to nuts if you ask me
0: yeah i um i, I think this is uh, something that i think uh, all of the listeners uh, or many of the listeners i'm guessing um are concerned about or or share frustration uh, regarding um, the fact that they are they require so many different solutions to plug in um, and just making sure that everything can talk to each other and all that nothing quite does everything they needed to do although it's getting better the kind of software that's out now just in the last five years that has really made a dent in the industry um, is making a big big um, is big making a big big push Talk to me. Now I want to go back to the other thing I want to talk about. There's so much good stuff. Um, talk to me about marketing. Talk to me about how you think about marketing. You were just talking about uh, the difference between value. You know, it's a value play, not a price play. Mm-hmm. Um, a few minutes ago, you mentioned we want to be able to teach operators you know, the right way to launch a, a full marketing campaign. Talk to me about how you think about marketing, how you think about launching campaigns, and then how you teach uh, people to do it the right way.
1: Yeah, so this is informed by some of my experience very early, early in my life, one of my first businesses. Was uh, wrangling up volunteers out of my high school, paying them a reasonable rate and charging political campaigns to go door knock for them. So I was one of those moot court and mock trial debate team kind of dorks in high
0: school. <laughs>
1: and we love talking to people, you know, no shock. And so I would gather together, you know, 50 to 100 volunteers and we would go knock on doors and meet super voters who were often elderly folks talk to them about the candidate, hand them some information. And so what's so interesting about that is dollar for dollar that was more successful than any flyer you could put in the mail than any sign you could put up on the street. And that was very or I'm going to date myself a little bit here. But in the late 90s, before there was a advent of all this social media, it was such a deep and personal connection to those voters, they had a very high turnout rate for us. And so it was so funny it just kind of became like my side hustle um for many years while i was in high school i was a little budding entrepreneur but what i learned from that was that personal moment of connection is extremely important and sometimes we struggle even on social media to have that level of connection i am a big fan of making sure that you have local market execution boots on the ground handshake, free samples, all of the things to really love on and build community before you even open the restaurant. So I think it's a mix of PR, where you have the buzz about the brand and people reporting on it. It's social media, very heavy on that, because the social media is the physical network and the digital network, where all of that community network starts to magnify. So suddenly, someone that you met, at the dry cleaner and you gave them that free sample, they're on social media loving your page and they're tagging 10 of their friends, right? It amplifies what you're doing in the marketplace, but the anchor of that entire marketing effort when we launch a brand, when we launch a unit in a local market is heavy, heavy, heavy on the local community connection. That is weeks in advance, weeks. So, As we're doing training and we're developing excess product, whatever it is, we'll take it out and sample it. We'll have tastings. We'll have VIP events. We'll show up at events even before the restaurants open. And I think that's really important that you show up, right? Social media is not a substitute for you showing up. And if you are going to have a brick and mortar unit, that is the most important thing I can give to you. Show up. Be a part of your local chamber. Meet the businesses next door. You know, go and talk to the co-tenants in the building. They're gonna be your best friends when you have a problem and the power is out and your walking cooler is down, right? So you need to kind of create that community. And again, I'll go back to that whole idea of agency. I never did that by myself. Our whole team was involved. The new employees that we would hire, the new manager. It was their directive. Like you have to go meet ten business leaders today. Go. You got this. (laughs) See if they love that. No, I'm at it, you know? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, no, so we talk about accountability and, uh, you know, the, the, the I always love the SMART goal framework, you know, make it specific. If we mm-hmm. make it specific, it's measurable. And I like making things actionable. Mm-hmm. So you say, do this, right? We, uh, so much of it, and I always do this when I work with, um, like, catering directors or, you know, uh, private dining managers and all that, and I get this from my wife, my wife is in straight sales, she does t- uh, tech sales. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can only control your controllables, you can only mm-hmm. control your metrics, how many calls you make, how many emails you you send, how many people you get on the phone, how many demos you book for the, the software that she sells and all of that. It's the same thing, you can't, you can't determine whether the mm-hmm. 10 people you meet are gonna do anything, but you've made a connection, that's what you're responsible for, and you can do that, I love that. Um, Talk to me about when things get going then. So if being present and actually in real life and all of that is a big part of the Mm pre-launch, let's say, how do you think about marketing moving forward when a brand is six months old, a year old, four years old?
1: Yeah. So I, my strategy isn't always the same, but I'll give one nugget that I think is super helpful here. Um, I I think a lot of early stage restaurateurs miss on the opportunity to have a loyalty program. You are never too small to have a loyalty program, period. And you have loyal fans, whether you realize it or not, and rewarding them and getting them to come in and increasing their frequency and creating them into what I would call a super fan, where they're no longer just a loyal and regular customer, but they become a brand evangelist is part of your mission right? So if you have an app or a way to reach them regularly, or maybe it's just your Facebook page, whatever, creating that kind of community within the community of super fans is really important. So create incentives for them, reward them with exclusive merch, give them opportunities to bring in their friends. Um, This was another thing. We created um, a card and it was called a bring a friend card. And like that manager card I told you where it was a free scoop, but it was essentially like, come on in, we'll buy your meal and, you know, bring your friend, you know, we'll pay for one of your meals. I think it was like, you buy yours, we'll buy theirs, something like that. And we gave them to our loyal customers in the restaurant. Like they would come in, we'd say, oh my God, it's great to see you again. We want to thank you for being such a huge fan. You're in here every week. It's so great to see you. Here's a couple cards. We'd love for you to bring a friend to lunch next time. We want to meet your friends, bring your family, whatever. And that worked incredibly well. Um, I think if we could, I
0: love all this stuff because we're talking all about analog solutions, not digital. (laughs) And I am a huge fan of analog. Um, I'm a big. I'm, it, it, people who listen to this show uh, for a long time have heard uh, many of my many of my uh, tricks and tactics and a lot of the stuff. You know, as a consultant and a coach, you know, I always I always famously get the questions like, "Oh, yeah, okay, but working with you, I mean, how much is it going to cost?" And I said, "If I gave you something really free that would get you the money, it would cost to make the investment in that, would you do it?" Yeah. And they're like, "Okay, what what free tool?" And I've done this before. Mm-hmm. And I said, "Okay, great." Here's the thing. I want you to do this, and we're going to talk in one week. And you tell me if you've not raised the money. And without fail, every time I've done that, they come back and said, "I, I can't. I can't believe it." I said, "Great. Now let's get to all the other work." There's my little parlor trick. <laughs> That's my parlor trick. And I kept my word. I gave you the the two things to do. And uh, but and they're all just they're all analog and so stupid. And uh, people are like, it was just so obvious. I was like, I know. It's just about being hospitable. It's, it's, yeah, which is what we do.
1: Yeah, and and there's there's some finesse there, right? I am a fan of the handwritten thank you note. I will never let that go. I love paper stationery, but I also think that there's something to be said, especially in this day and age, of saying thank you in writing in your own handwriting. And there's similarly something that happens when you have that interaction at the table and the manager goes over and explains what they're doing and they have that moment of gratitude and you know you're humbly asking someone to continue supporting your business but to amplify by bringing their friends in that's an ask i love it right i love it um i don't know that it rings the same way in a loyalty app and i've tried it and it just it works but not really with the same level of panache and the same level of yeah.
0: grandiosity. Well, I was going to I was going to ask you if there are if there are loyalty programs that work better than others because I I I'm sort of I've <laughs> gone on the record by saying like they're all sort of doing like like none of them does anything better I I'll say this. No o- a loyalty app does it better than cutting out the 10 coupons from the pizza box that I did in 1994. Like that just worked better. Uh, we moved into this house, so I, I moved out of the city out to New Jersey, and we moved in in the middle of August, and in the juncture, drawer, the family who had owned the house before us left us all their cardboard from the pizza place, and they said, we figured we'd Here's the best part. Tell me if this is not genius. They said, hey, we couldn't use them before we left. But then we figured, you know, this is our favorite pizza place. And you get a couple of free pizzas out of this. Like, like what? Like you're talking to a, you know, restaurant marketer. I'm like, I could not have written this any better. Like they gifted us two free pizzas. (laughs) Picture. I was like, (laughs) Oh, it was amazing. And you know what? When we're like up to our ears and boxes and can barely carve out mm-hmm. enough space on the table that we just put together. Like, yeah, pizza, pizza was all it was. And it did, we didn't have to struggle too far. We we're like, well, we already get two free pizzas. Let's go.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I I, look, I think digital has its place, but I think there are just as many analog solutions that still work wonderfully. And I want to be clear, this is not, you know, this isn't a coupon strategy that I'm talking about. I think this is more of a loyalty strategy and how you reward Mm -hmm. your loyal fans, and frankly, your loyal employees, too. I mean, let's not leave that out. You know, I deal with this every day at full course. You know, we have spent very little on marketing, very little, 90 something percent of all of our leads from clients to investors to vendors are come from referrals. And yep. there is something very powerful, not just about rewarding your customers who are loyal to but your employees, too. I mean, turning around and handing four free scoop cards to one of your loyal employees and saying give these out to your friends we'd love to see your friends and your family in here why don't you come in for a meal on saturday when you're off that kind of thing yep and look i think at the end of the day everyone in our industry you're in this hopefully because you have a, a an air of you have a servant's heart You've, you you're a servant leader you believe in helping others And that does have a certain amount of, or require a certain amount of empathy and understanding. What I am saying is take a beat, pause, and think about how you can have empathy and understanding for your employees, for your customers, for your loyal fans, and how can you use that information to touch them even even in, in a more meaningful way to get them to continue to level up. And what you're looking for is to take them from yeah, I'll give this place five stars, it's great, and I'll come here in regular rotation to super fan. That, that I think, is where you want them to go. That's what you're trying yep. to get to, whether they're an employee or a customer yeah. or a vendor, it doesn't matter, you
0: know? Totally, and you know, it's so funny, you just said it yourself, right? Like, like, we, you said it, we know it, everybody's nodding their head. Word of mouth is still the most powerful tool we have. Hard stop. So if we know that, then for me, the game becomes, how can we help spark word of mouth what Mm -hmm. specifically can we do to get people to go talk about us, to, to rave about us, to post pictures about us, to leave reviews because they love us so much. Yeah. For me, it's just that simple. If we know it works, we know that's the most powerful tool, how can we just make that sticky? How can we make it obvious? Yeah. Um, how can we make it happen with greater ease?
1: Yeah. I, to me, I think it's the three things. It's, it's in concert, right? So it, like I said earlier, I think it's that boots on the ground marketing that's in person, whatever that yep. looks like, number one um number two um you know I, I think it's some element of pr and i can't say this enough. i think pr is sometimes the unsung hero of our industry because there's a validation that happens when you hear the buzz about the brand and then it's validated in a third party like yeah. a news article or on radio sure. or whatever because it feels like it's third person it doesn't necessarily feel like it's the brand pushing marketing at you, you know, and, you know, I think the third thing is that building in that loyalty component from the beginning, like you've got to do that. And for us, what that meant was a ridiculous amount of love bombing on those folks. If you wanted to participate in our grand opening, you had to download the loyalty app. We gave away tons of swag. I've spent more on swag at our grand openings than I did on (laughs) VR. And it's this weird ratio that just always worked for us where that love bombing moment where we were like, Oh my God, thank you for showing up and supporting us for our opening. Thank you for following us on Facebook for a month while we were working on getting open. Thanks for coming to our soft launch and testing our kitchen. It's a thank you. You're saying thank you out of the gate, you just opened the doors. And so for so many owners, they're like, What do you mean I need to spend five grand on giving away stuff. And I'm like, not only are you gonna give away five grand worth of stuff, you're gonna spread it out over a whole week and make it amazing. Right? So first 100 people this day, get this first 100 people the second day who spend 20 bucks get this you know and you kind of map it out over a week yep. so if someone doesn't want to come and wait in line at your grand opening for four hours to get in then they can come on Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever yeah. and still yeah. feel it and to me that's that perfect mix right of loyalty and PR and the boots on the ground piece and you know we can't ignore social I'm not trying to leave that out intentionally but I think there's a lot of talk about social already I just don't think it's the only answer,
0: like if you a you are speaking order. my language this is this is what I believe <laughs> for me, it's always the last thing we talk about. Mm-hmm. I, you know we get to it I said, great, so now let's talk about social media like, oh, we've just been talking for hours about everything else I said I know, and that's sort of where it is and I like you, um, I believe in the importance of it and the power mm-hmm. that it can have um, but for me, it's just it, 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 it for so many operators, it's the only marketing they do. Um, and it, it, they fail to acknowledge all the things it cannot achieve. Um, so I, I like to flip the conversation and talk about all the other stuff we could and should be doing. Um, and then, oh, yeah, okay, now let's talk about your social media strategy, because you need an organic and a paid side to it. And yeah. what are we trying to accomplish with this? And how can we use this to support some of our broader goals and so on? We are coming to the end of our time here. Um, I've loved this conversation. (laughs) This has been great. Um, I want to uh, give you a chance to send people to where they need to go. Where can they go learn more about you and Full Course?
1: Yeah. So all of our offerings at Full Course from our classes that we offer, some of which are free, some of which are under, you know, $99, our workshops, our monthly subscription coaching program and our consulting and investment track are all available at fullcourse.com you can click a link that says book a call and speak to our team anytime that's convenient for you so we can figure out how we can best help you we work really hard to create a wide array of services so that we can be of service to our industry and help lift everyone up we sincerely believe a rising tide lifts all boats and we are here to help. So if you need any, please hit us up at fullcourse.com. And we are on all forms of social media as at fullcourseofficial.
0: Yeah, love it. Listen, I love this conversation. <laughs> Last words of wisdom that you want to leave the audience with.
1: Yeah. I mean, look, never forget why you signed up to do this in the first place. And if you can reconnect to that passion every single morning, you will be aligning to your true north. I think most of us who are in this industry are in it for the right reasons. It's been a tough slog at times. It's been a rough couple of years, but I just want to encourage everyone to stay the course. And if you need someone to lift you up, you just give me a call. I'm here for you.
0: Sounds good. Yeah, I mean, this is the beauty of it, right? And all coaching. I find this with the coaching that I do, too, um, is that all of us are so siloed. uh, So operators, owners are siloed and um, just getting together and and learning from each other, working with each other and all of that. So um, that's, I think, the beauty of the podcast is that we're creating community here, giving Mm -hmm. people sort of a place, a little town square to come and talk about all the things and listen uh, to all the things that I think are near and dear to all of us. Um, Listen, Lauren, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, all the best to you, and we will speak before long.
1: Thank you so much. Appreciate you doing this podcast. It's a wonderful support for our community, so thank you.
0: Thank you. Once again, a big thank you to Lauren for taking time out of her day to uh, sit and chat with me. Again, I want to remind you, there is a special link in the show notes uh, give you access uh, to all of the, the programs and stuff like that. You can go check it out. Also, if you use the promo code STRATEGY, Right. If you use the promo code Strategy, gets you 15% off any of the full courses that are available at Full Course. So go check it out. Again, in the show notes, you're gonna find a special link uh, that for uh, Restaurant Strategy listeners. Uh, and if you use the code Strategy, that will give you 15% discount on any of the full course, uh, the full courses that are available there. Again, appreciate you guys being here. I will see you next time.